This is Conducting Business, WQXR's show about the classical music industry. I'm Naomi Lewin. The year 2013 saw plenty of headline-making moments in classical music, including protesters who disrupted opening night of the Met and a stagehand strike that canceled opening night at Carnegie Hall. There were heated debates over women conductors and some complicated celebrations for Richard Wagner. It was another tough year for many orchestras, but a good one for Benjamin Britten fans. Joining us to talk about the past year are Anne Majet, classical music critic of the Washington Post, Justin Davidson, classical music and architecture critic for New York Magazine, and Heidi Whaleson, a classical music critic for the Wall Street Journal. We're going to try and take this by categories, so let's start with your high point. And I'm going to start with you. 2013, the year Van Cliburn died, I understand you thought this was a very good year for a young Russian pianist. Well, when I'm thinking of high points, I always think of what my favorite concerts were. And Daniil Trifonov is a pianist whom I find just totally exciting. And it's wonderful having done this job for a long time and going to a lot of concerts to find a pianist who just makes you really want to sit there and listen and not get up and really involves you. I mean, I hear a lot of great, great concerts in the course of a year, but I felt that Trifonov has something really special and is a really interesting artist and somebody I look forward to hearing again and again. Um, He seems to be able to inspire a genuine excitement that's nice in an era of many hyped up solo performances. And also at the top of your high points was something that sounded, to me anyway, when I read about it, like the worst idea in the world, Grimes on the Beach. Well, you know, I confess I didn't see Grimes on the Beach live, but it was supposed to be one of the most moving experiences. It's, of course, Benjamin Britten's opera, Peter Grimes, which is, for me, a high point of the world, the fact that it exists as a high point. And Britten's centenary was celebrated in his hometown of Aldeboro, where he has a festival, by a performance of Peter Grimes in the outdoors, by all accounts, and and to judge from clips of the video, which I saw subsequently, it was an extremely powerful and moving experience, since it's a very primal piece and a piece that has a lot to say about the sea and the landscape and the setting in which it's set. There was a great performance of Peter Grimes here on this side of the Atlantic, too. Yes, there was. It was at uh, the St. Louis Symphony. Um, They performed it at Carnegie Hall, and it was really pretty exciting. They brought the the biggest chorus I think I've seen in a very long time. Must have been about 120 people. And they had a terrific all-star cast led by Tony Griffey and um, Susanna Phillips, Phillips, who was just sensational as Ellen Orford. And it was really, it was a very moving experience, I thought. Tony Griffey being Anthony Dean Griffey. Oh, sorry about that. No, (laughs) more formally. Right. Justin, you also had some opera on your list for one of the high points, Yvonne Fischer and the Budapest Festival Orchestra doing Mozart's Marriage of Figaro. Yeah, I thought that was an incredibly inventive production. And one of the things I really liked about it was that it was one of these really portable productions. It was done in a concert hall with the orchestra on stage, um, no sets, minimal props, costumes that uh, were either taken off a clothes hanger that was a clothes rack that was sitting on the stage or else dropped in on guy wires so that the cast members could put them on while they were singing in some cases or just before. And with um, minimal resources, really, 
they produced one of the most um, effervescent and inventive productions I've seen of that opera. And of course, that's a pretty high bar. And what it said to me was how much you can do if your musical values are high uh, with how little. I mean, this is uh, even Fisher, the conductor, who also directed the show. And it just seemed like a real sort of concentrated distillation of inventiveness and joy in putting it on. It was a real let's-put-on-a-show kind of production. And I also found having the orchestra right there pretty much interacting with the singers made me hear things in a score that I'd never heard before in a score that I've heard a thousand times before. Yeah, I mean, we've seen over the years now a fair number of productions with the orchestra being there essentially on the stage and the singers and the action sort of weaving its way around. That's a fairly you know, common way of putting on concert versions of, of operas. But this was kind of had a flexibility that I don't see often. And the conductor wandered around. He was not always standing there right in the front. He would move he over to the side. He was like he was part of the show. And so were the orchestra players. I mean, they seemed they were playing parts along with the characters. Yeah, there was, was a kind really of relaxed kind of cool. feeling about the whole thing that was mm-hmm. just very, I mean, at the very beginning, he's... Uh, Yvonne Fisher is on the stage, but he's talking to audience members mm-hmm. and to the orchestra, and it just sort of seems like a cocktail party. And then all of a sudden, the music starts starts up, and you don't quite know when it's begun. Heidi, you also had opera as a high point. You chose Written on Skin by George Benjamin, which had its premiere at Tanglewood last summer. Yes, that was pretty extraordinary. I mean, Written on Skin... Um, is a piece that had actually had its premiere at the X Festival um, in 2012, and the word on it was just incredible. And it was immediately picked up by a whole lot of other houses. I think um, it's been about 20 different venues are putting it on. It's not coming to New York until 2015. But I see a lot of new operas, and this piece just had the kind of tension and perfection that you just don't often see. I mean, so often you see these new operas and you think, well, why did they bother? You know, why do you turn (laughs) this movie or this book into an opera? It didn't need to be one and you're not adding anything new. This was a completely new piece of writing and it had it had attention to it from beginning to end not a single word was wasted um, it has only five characters it has a f- fantastically colorful and intricate orchestration which includes a solo moment for the viola da gamba which is of course very important to me and it was performed by uh, the Tanglewood students of the Tanglewood Music Center conducted by the composer and they just really played it brilliantly. It was just breathtaking. For anybody who is now utterly intrigued by this and desperately needs to hear it, it is archived at the moment on our web stream, Q2, so you can go to wqxr.org, click on Q2, and listen to Written on Skin. Opera was also on everybody's list for low point, biggest disappointment, and you were all in a chorus of agreement on this one. The Death of New York City Opera. What about that to each of you was the most tragic? Well, the City Opera is was a vaunted company. It had a real role in New York as the so-called second house, a traditional role in many major cities. Um, the particularly bitter thing about its demise is it was the result of a long series of missteps, poor decisions, mismanagement. It is not, in short, a sign of the times, although the times are difficult for the performing arts. It is not a sign that New York can't support two opera companies. It is a sign that due to unfortunate decisions on the part of the board, 
and a whole sequence of events, this particular thing happened that didn't really need to happen. I'm not saying that it would have been easy to save City Opera. It's a struggle to keep any performing arts organization going. But this was not an inevitable death. And for that reason, I think it's especially sad to see such a beloved institution go. One of the lessons of that, although I agree with Anne, there were very specific circumstances that led to that particular company's demise through uh, missteps going back years and that that compounded each other. Um, but I think that one thing you can sort of take away from it is that it was really the product of a classical music and operatic infrastructure that over the years got overextended. And while we had learned to expand, we have in common with a lot of American cities a lot of difficulty trying to uh, do planned shrinkage or to try to you know figure out how to contract. So if you make union contracts and you have a season that establish a kind of baseline, it's very, very difficult to say, well, we really need this to be smaller and we can make it work or we need to do something different and it, we can make it work because that's always perceived as failure and then that becomes self-fulfilling. Um, so I think City Opera tried to say, well, we're just too unwieldy. It's the musical equivalent of a city taking down a highway it doesn't need. But the problem is once you've done that, you just are on an inclined slope and it's very hard to stop. I agree with that. It's, a, it's an interesting point because the principal problem with City Opera was, in fact, its, its infrastructure and the fact that it could no longer be supported and that it was unable to come up with a convincing audience strategy, um, opera house strategy, or even artistic strategy during this um, decade-long decline that led to its closing. I mean, they did try to do a couple of things, and I think that in their last couple of years, after the year that they were closed down when they came back, they did try a couple of things that were I thought were quite interesting, doing, for example, A Quiet Place, bringing a, a Leonard Bernstein's opera um, that had never been done in New York. Um, they tried a couple of pretty crazy pieces that, you know, I didn't really care for all that much, Anna Nicole in particular. But they were, in fact, trying to reestablish themselves as something that was alternative to the Met, that was a little more forward-looking. And I think it's really a shame that they weren't able to pull together enough money or um, enough audience support to make that work. Well, the programming was quite good, and the programming was really not the problem. Um, and I think with a proper kind of leadership and without having to work off the obstacle of having been closed for a year, there were a lot of hurdles the leadership had to face coming in. But I think that still with the right kind of leadership, it might be possible even to make shrinkage something that can work for you. If you work correctly with the unions, if you work with people, I think there was a little bit of trouble selling the vision to the staff, to the musicians, and to the donors. And I'm not saying that, that was, I couldn't point fingers and say, oh, well, I could have done it better. But I don't think that it's impossible to adjust a model if you find the right way to convey your message to people. And speaking of that, you also had the Minnesota Orchestra on your list of low points. And Ugh. speaking of adjusting models, there is now a glimmer of hope on that scene. There certainly is. That Minnesota orchestra story may be one of the first labor dispute stories in the history of orchestras in which the 
musicians are actually gaining a kind of upper hand, which is to say the administration has locked out the musicians for it's been 14 or 15 months now. It's been since October a year ago. Osmo Vanska, their conductor, finally resigned um, when their Carnegie Hall tour was canceled, saying it couldn't work under these circumstances. Um, But the musicians have, during this lockout, banded together and begun offering concerts and performances, and Vanska is coming back to perform with them as the musicians of the Minnesota Orchestra. And management is starting to get hassled by the funders for not actually giving any concerts in Orchestra Hall for 14 months while the musicians are giving concerts elsewhere. The musicians have fundraised, I think, $650,000 now. So it is a very interesting model of sort of musicians just taking their marbles and going off and starting their own marble game. And if the administration of the Minnesota Orchestra can't actually offer concerts, it may develop a situation where the administration is going to have to be replaced. So that we now have two entities. One is the musicians of the Minnesota Orchestra and the Minnesota Orchestra without the musicians. And exactly. the Minnesota Orchestra without the musicians um, controls the endowment, um, yes. which I think is... Which is huge. So... Um, so yeah, $650,000 doth not an orchestra make. No. Are they going to be able to fund the musicians of the Minnesota Orchestra and or shake loose the funding? Well, they're going to have to come to some kind of agreement. It's not like a winner-take-all kind of situation. But at some point, the people who control the money, namely the board, is going to have to realize that uh, you know this leadership is, by definition, not effective. If you're not producing concerts and you are losing your orchestra and you lose your music director, what exactly are you doing? Yeah. They have a concert hall. It's all fixed up. <laughs> It would sound very good, too. If there were an orchestra in it. It's interesting that the WQXR listeners agreed with you. Um, We did an online poll on the biggest story of the year, and half the people who responded said the death of City Opera. A third said the Minnesota Orchestra dispute. We had 12% talking about debates over women conductors, sexism, and gays, and only 7% said the Wagner, Verdi, and Britain anniversaries, which leads me to ask whether listeners really care about this. Clearly to programmers, it's a big deal to program around these anniversaries. But what does this say about programming that listeners don't really seem to care about it that much? Oh, I think listeners might care, but it's not really a news item. I mean, it's nice to have an excuse to hear Verdi and Wagner performances, but the fact that Verdi and Wagner are 200 years old is hardly a burning topic. We don't wake up and think about that as part of the news. So I wouldn't say I didn't call them the most important events of the year either, yet I really enjoyed getting to hear some Verdi and Wagner. And you picked the whole idea of women, women conductors, composers as your biggest trend that you saw this year. What do you think was driving that? Was it Marin Alsop at the proms or something else? I think we were reaching a kind of tipping point where classical music has proven to have a particularly thick glass ceiling. People looking at the situation and saying, it's been years, people. Why do we still not have very many female conductors on the podium? And when we do, why is it such a big deal? Female composers, there were a lot of lists this year, a lot of articles this year, a lot of attention this year to the fact that female conductors are very underrepresented. And I don't think it's so much Alsop. You know, Alsop remains the one-eyed woman and as king in the country of the blind. That is, there are... Queen! Ooh. Queen! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I think that, you know, there should be an, an ecosystem where there are many, many 
other female conductors of Alsop's attainments, and we stop looking so much at the fact of her being a woman. And as she said when she was in Britain getting a huge amount of press for being the first woman ever to conduct the last night of the proms, um, it's really unfortunate that this is still a milestone in this day and age. And there's still that funny ambivalence about how far we should look at this as a phenomenon and how far we should just pretend that we've all been equal all along. Justin, you wrote a whole column about this. Yeah, I think that it's representative. The difficulty that we have as a as a collection of institutions, as sort of a classical music establishment, in accepting, encouraging um, women to become, you know, really enmeshed in all parts of the business, not just, uh, you know, in the front office or backstage, but and, and not just on stage, but you know, on the podium and in other positions. That difficulty is a sign of the difficulty that the whole establishment has in adapting at all. You know, and I think it's is related to things like City Opera and the Minnesota Orchestra. I think that what happens is these institutions are very rigid and brittle, and when they come up against an obstacle, they know that they're going to splinter, and so they avoid the obstacles. And it's a very inflexible, um, non-supple set of relationships. And so uh, something that seems as obvious and as just kind of a no-brainer as fostering, you know, half of the people who go into music studies and taking advantage of those talents and bringing them up through the system. I mean, why are we debating that? That should be the most obvious possible thing. That should be in everybody's interest. Why would you exclude that enormous talent pool from, you know, rising to the top of the profession? And yet the fact that that, that still isn't happening is... I ha- don't have a whole lot of optimism about that, actually. I find that incredibly discouraging because I think it says a lot about, you know, there there are things happening in some parts. I mean, we're all paying more attention to new music. The Pulitzer Prize went to a young female um, composer, Caroline Shaw, who sort of emerged not through the traditional channels in some ways. But I used to think it was a generational thing. But you're getting some pretty young voices saying some pretty appalling things. For example... Uh, Vasily Petrenko and uh, Tamir Khanov. Right, Tamir Khanov. But, you know, Tamir Khanov is an older generation, and you can, you know, sort of expect the the Codger syndrome. But when you're talking about young conductors in their 40s, and I assume that anybody in their 40s is still young, is, you know, basically has these paleolithic points of view about the role of women. You know, it's just you think like in another kind of market, in another kind of business, that person would be out. Those points of view would be completely unacceptable. And yet we kind of shrug and we say, well, okay, it'll change gradually. Well, maybe it will and maybe it won't. Heidi? I agree. I think it's really a remarkable thing that people are still are actually saying that and no one is, you know, rising up and... (laughs) Decapitating them? <laughs> yes, I mean, really. Though, you know, if you look at the orchestras, I mean, they, I, I don't know, I haven't done a count lately, but I mean, the New York Philharmonic looks to be about 50% women at this point. So at so least. Why not the podium? Yeah, I mean, exactly. Uh, Jane Glover just conducted at the Met once again. It was, uh, you know, pointed out she's only the third, the third woman, woman right. to conduct at the Metropolitan Opera. And, of course, you know, she's in early music, so... But that's you know, very interesting. It was a holiday <laughs> opera performance. Yeah, exactly. For children. You, you know, <laughs> I, children. I do think... I think that, actually, in a sort of odd way, the one note of optimism in, in this is that it's very difficult. We used to think of the maestro as the big star, sort of the media creature. 
And, uh, you know, the celebrity maestro almost doesn't exist anymore. I mean, there are a couple, but, you know, it's really not fame, national, international attention in the broader world outside of classical music is pretty elusive, unless you're Vladimir Gergiev in Russia. And in a way, I think that that may be a positive thing for women in the profession, because as you remove that, then uh, they are just part of a system and, uh, you know, a lot of people working as professional musicians. And clearly the barriers to professional musicians working at a high level for women are not so high because the orchestras do have women. So it's this sort of strange thing about the podium. And maybe as the mystique of the podium wanes, it actually becomes more accessible. That's what they said about women music critics, too. <laughs> See, it's working. <laughs> and, and we're all disappearing because... <laughs> well, that's just, that's, let's not go there into, into, yeah, yeah. into what's happening in the journalism yeah, business. Right. Justin, you mentioned yeah. Caroline Shaw, who won the Pulitzer Prize as an example of a young woman to whom good things are happening. And you picked that as your biggest musical surprise. So did you, Anne. Uh, yes. Did this One come of out of left field? Because a lot of people have never heard of her. How did this totally. happen? I mean, having served on one of those juries, I think the way it happened was her score was in a pile of scores, and you listened to some of it, and it just jumped out. I mean, I wasn't on that jury. But, you know, I think it's actually, a, uh, despite its reputation uh, uh, for the Pulitzer Prize, I think it's actually a fairly kind of egalitarian process, which is you listen to all the stuff. There's this huge pile of music, and... Um, Based on listening to it, you decide whether or not you need to hear more of it. And that piece just, you know, there were not a lot of people who had heard it before it went to the Pulitzer jury. But then afterwards, and I hadn't, but then afterwards I listened to it and I could hear immediately why people thought it was appealing. It has a quality that almost no contemporary music has, um, which is joy. It's something that we've kind of forgotten is a part of the classical music tradition and an important one. You know, music through the 20th century into the 21st got so serious. And this piece just has this kind of, like, vibrancy and ebullience that I think is, you know, hard to resist. And performed by a group called Room Full of Teeth. There's that. How can you resist? (laughs) (laughs) I have to confess that I reviewed the piece before it won the Pulitzer. It was three or four sections of it were presented in the context of a larger Roomful of Teeth concert. And I missed it completely. I was not overwhelmed by it. I don't think I even mentioned it. I thought it was clever and sort of fun, but I didn't think it was worth a lot of attention. I like it a lot better when I've heard it all together, you know, as as one piece rather than as separated excerpts. But it's an interesting thing in that the composer doesn't even necessarily self-identify as a composer. At least she didn't when she won the prize. And um The Pulitzer has been very eager to expand its reach and to get outside of the norm of what had been deemed Pulitzer-worthy over the years. And I think this is a sign that that is happening. As Justin says, depending on the jury, you're sitting in a room. I've been on one of those juries, too. You're sitting in a room and listening to scores and trying your best to, to judge. And it's great when something just jumps out at you like that. Yeah, and you were not alone. I mean, nobody had heard the piece all the way through live at the time right. of the Pulitzer. It just hadn't been performed as one complete entity. I wonder if they would have served her better had they offered it as a complete entity. I'm sure I would have noticed it much more had it been presented as a thing rather than scattered through the program in little bits. Yeah. You all mentioned that there was a trend going on in opera. And Justin, you talked about opera in alternative spaces having come into its own this year. 
Well, I think, uh, you know, with the demise of City Opera, that has to happen. With the cost of real estate in New York, it means that opera companies are finding, uh, you know, cheaper venues. And I think the technology has matured enough so that all you really need is a pretty small room and, you know, a fairly minimal investment in, in machinery to be able to put on a pretty sophisticated multimedia event. To me, the signal uh, development in that on that front is the uh, first prototype festival that opened last winter, and the second one is coming up, in which uh, three or four or five different productions of small-scale but ambitious works were produced at various different events. In fact, I think I went to three different venues I had never been to before. And, you know, they're all very small and they're they're very plain, you know, basic black box kind of space mostly. But it's just amazing what you can do, you know, and their level of inventiveness. And Heidi, you saw this in... I said the same thing. I mean, I think that the, the Prototype Festival was a really interesting uh, move in that direction. And there are other... Um, organizations that are doing similar kinds of things. The Gotham Chamber Opera put on a Cavalli opera in a burlesque club. And Opera Philadelphia put on Svadba, which is a an acapella piece for six female voices in a black box theater down near the river in Philadelphia. And they followed it. It's about a wedding the night before the wedding. It's about six women preparing the bride for the wedding. And so this after this hour-long piece was over, everybody moved into the next room in this facility and had a Balkan wedding party with a, um, a hipster band and food and beer. So I think that doing things like this not only is an interesting way to do things on a somewhat less extreme budget than most opera companies do, but it also... I think uh, attracts a different kind of audience. You can break through some of the formality of going to the opera house and, you know, sitting in the velvet seat and watching the gold curtain go up. And you have something that becomes a less formal, less of a big deal, more like going to a club. And you think about classical music or about opera as being Something that's, again, you know, we're getting back to what Justin mentioned before, something that's kind of fun to do, not a big formal arrangement. And my only quibble would be in saying that that was a phenomenon of this year. Um, in 2003, I did a piece for the New York Times called Never Say Die in Indie Opera, which was about the burgeoning number of small companies in New York. Um, in 2009 or 10 for the Washington Post, I did a big piece on chamber opera and how that was really sort of the wave of the future. It enables people to try out new opera in a more affordable venue. Um, putting a new opera on a main stage like the Metropolitan Opera is extremely expensive and doesn't necessarily serve the work or the composer all that well, as we saw with Nico Muley's Two Boys, in which a fabulously talented composer was slightly straitjacketed by the rigors of this enormous form and this enormous machinery that is a Metropolitan Opera production. My, what I thought about new opera this year, in fact, was that there was a striking amount of it on main stages. I think that big companies are seeing the need to change things, to offer subscribers new things, to break out of the canon a little bit, to find some of that flexibility Justin mentioned before. And I think you, we saw a lot of world premieres this year um, in America and around the world. And there are a lot of interesting new productions and unusual operas coming up in 2014. And there's an appetite for new things that I think is growing. And I think that's a really welcome trend, not just, as I say, in chamber operas, but in the big companies as well.
And on that optimistic note, I would like to say thank you to all of you for coming in. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. This has been Conducting Business. Our guests today were Washington Post music critic Anne Majette, The Wall Street Journal's Heidi Whaleson, and Justin Davidson from New York Magazine. Brian Wise is our producer. I'm Naomi Lewin. Thanks for listening, and Happy New Year.